Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osban, here with my friend, Chavruta Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masachi Kedubot, daf Kufhe, page 105. Well, today we're going to begin our final parak of Masachi Kedubot, which is hard to believe. It's the 13th parak of Masachi Kedubot. And the missions that we have in this parak are actually rather interesting. Uh, they're not organized by a topic, but instead they're organized according to the rulings or sayings of two particular judges who lived in Yerushalayim during the period of Bayit Shani. Um, and the name of these two judges are Admon and Hanan ben Avi Shalom. Um, most people place them to probably be of the possible, uh, either they lived maybe during the uh, fourth, er- the during the generation of the fourth Zugot, which is Shmaya and Naftalyon. Um, but I've also seen that maybe they're considered to be sort of a, the first generation of Tanayim, and we will see a clue to that as well um, in the Mishnah itself. Um, these probably were, they were some type of civil judges, um, and the Mishnah is very interested in the particular type of rulings that they gave um, and who disagreed with them and who said that we follow actually their rulings. Um, other than that, we don't have too much autobiographical information um, about them. Uh, there is uh, some, um, you know, uh, that, uh, I don't know what the word is, um, tradition, I guess, that Admon um, is buried next to Akavia ben Mahalala, which is another um, uh, Tana that we sometimes read about. Um, but it's not clear that that's exactly where he is buried. Um, so again, these are sort of two judges made famous by uh, the Mishnah, not completely clear exactly uh, when they appear or what time period they are. But again, either they're, they're at some point at the end of the Zugot or either like first or, or very, very early Tanayim. So the Mishnah reads as follows and it actually starts um, at the uh, bottom of uh, 104. So uh, we're going to start there today. And it reads as follows. There were sort of two um, prominent judges who issued decrees in Yerushalayim, Admon v'Hanan ben Avi Shalom. So Admon and Hanan ben Avi Shalom. Hanan omer shnei devarim. Hanan said two things. Admon omer shiva. And Admon said seven. Misha, and so what were these things that they uh, said? And again, these are things that the Chacham and the Chazal are going to disagree with. So the first ruling is as follows. Misha hayam mizonot. Right? So let's say we have somebody who goes overseas. And when he leaves, this man leaves, his wife comes and she demands that, you know, she be provided mizonot. She basically claims he didn't leave me any money and I need to be, provided funds in order to get my mizonot from my husband's property. So Hanan Omer, So he would say that she takes an oath at the end, meaning the end of their marriage. In other words, if she learns that her husband died while he was traveling, so she would take an oath, she would take a shfuah that basically her husband didn't leave her any funds when he left to go overseas, and she can get full payment of her ketubah. Um, but she would not take a shvua. She would not take an oath at the beginning of his trip when she wants to demand funds just for her mizonot. So the sons of the high priest disagreed with Hanan's opinion. But Amru, and they said, 
that no, she actually would take an oath both at the beginning of that trip and also um, at the end of that trip. So she would take, a, th- that's when she would have to take that oath. She would take it at both of those um, times. Now, who are these uh, B'nai uh, Kohanim? So this was probably, you know, like the, the you know, the, the priests who lived around the temple. And it would make sense because these were judges of Yerushalayim. So they probably had some sort of interaction uh, with, with each other. Um, and uh, so they, you know, didn't agree with Hanan's ruling about this. I'm a Rabbi Dosev ben Harkinis Kedivrahim. So Rabbi Dosev ben Harkinis says that we actually follow this, their statement, meaning the statement of the Bnei Kohanim Gedolim. I'm a Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai says, Yafteh Amar Hanan, Lo Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, who really is of the first generation of Tanaim, who remember really sort of remodels what Judaism looks like post-temple. And so I think it's interesting that he is sort of disagreeing with the Kohan, with the B'nai Kohanim Gedolim, who sort of represent temple-centric Judaism. He says, no, it's good what Hanan says, and that, you know, she uh, would only take this oath, um, that she would only take this oath uh, at, at the end. Um, so it's very, very interesting, uh, you know, to sort of see this disagreement, uh, th- this disagreement that they that they have here. So again, Hanan comes right, and he basically says uh, that she would have to take, uh, you know, this oath at the end, but not at the beginning. The Bnei Kohanim Gedolim come and they say no, needs to take two oaths. Rabbi Dosa comes and says, okay, we agree with the Bnei Kohanim Gedolim. Rabbi Yochanan comes and says, no, I'm actually going to agree with the statement of Hanan. The Gemara then begins with a whole discussion about how to understand this mission because they bring a brisa, There's a brisa that says that there were three judges who did laws of gezelot, of theft in Yerushalayim, Admon ben Gadai, v'chanan ha-mitzri, v'chanan ben Avshalom, ben Avishalom. Um, so and so the question they ask is Kasha Plata Atrain, Kasha Gezerot Agzelot. So the question they basically want to know is is why does this Brisa mention three judges? The Mishnah only mentions two. Um, and so and also the fact that the Mishnah sort of describes these as the ones who uh, issued these decrees, and the Brisa says that no, it's 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 judges who uh, ruled in cases of theft. So that's the discussion that the Gemara is going to at least start to get into is to try to understand why is there a difference between uh, the Mish- Mishnah and the Brisa in what seems to be a description of uh, the same, um, uh, the, you know, the same set or at least the same partial set of, of, of judges. Um, but a very, very interesting Mishnah, at least I think, because it gives us a lot of, you know, good, again, historical information, but these are not people that we have that much information about and even placing them uh, in a time period, uh, you know, is a little bit, you'll even read, some people actually put Hanan maybe even as a, you know, uh, uh, later on, like maybe he could have actually been in the second century of a third generation Tana. So it's it's interesting to see, it's like not clear exactly where they all, where they all belong. I think, though, that they really, it makes this stuff and I guess this parak, um, 
very colorful, right? Because we do have real life personalities and real life cases in a way that isn't, you know, theoretical halacha, I think. Meaning the, the theoretical halacha is there, but it's really, I don't know, as I say, illustrated with these colorful personalities. Right. Well, um, I think what's also interesting here is that we have many masachtot of halacha, obviously, but masachot ketubot ends in this very fascinating way where we've sort of seen all this law being put down about ketubot, inheritance, you know, all these types of things. And then it sort of ends with like actual practical rulings. And do we follow those rulings or do we not follow those rulings given by specific judges? This is not something typical that we see in Mishnah. So there must have been, I, I, my guess is, I could be wrong, is I wonder if part of the reason that is, is because we're not dealing with a set of halacha that's based on like a particular pasuk or a particular mitzvah. These are sort of like, it's, it's and remember, Ketubah is a rabbinic, you know, yes, you know, Rabbi Mayer has like a source that maybe it actually is from the Torah itself. But it's basically the whole concept of having a ketubah is rabbinic in origin in order to protect the woman in marriage. So I wonder if almost the Mishnah needed to like strengthen the case for it or strengthen that this was really accepted by actually giving rulings, whether we follow them or don't follow them, with the names of the particular judges to be like, we have a real tradition of, you know, these laws being discussed and being ruled upon. I think that's interesting. I think Amun Bet here shows something else, which is that, you know, we have this general principle against, you know, judges taking bribery, which, you know, should be kind of basic for anybody listening, except for that that basic rule isn't enough, right? The rule of don't take a bribe is, you know, as I say, obvious, basic, except for what does that mean when someone is then approached by somebody offering something that might or might not be construed as a bribe. And what is the judge supposed to do under those circumstances? And and I think that the straight halacha, the strict basic law, is not enough to make it clear what it means to really live those laws, as opposed to, I don't know, uh, certain laws of kashrut or Shabbos or, or things that we've learned in all the other masachto, right? Including these laws of inheritance, right? The the concept of dividing up inheritance between amongst heirs and the wife, right? Or the widow um, is you don't need to have real life people to illustrate what's supposed to happen, right? Because the case law is enough. And here I feel like, I don't know, I'm not going to read all the cases inside. I'm going to start a little bit before then, but it seems to me that we need the examples of the real life people in their historical context to be able to understand what does it really mean to turn down a bribe? Um, okay, so I'm starting towards the top of Amud Bet. Amar Rabba Bar Rav Shela. Hi, Diana de Shaul Sheelta. Pasul Lameidan Dina. So the, he says that if a judge borrows from a person, right, or from anybody really, right, he that same judge is then disqualified from being the judge on for those same people. Right, because it says if then, pasulame dandina he can't give their judgment below amran el delate le alishuule aval idle lashule late lanpa. Right, we say this only is a case where he isn't lending to others, but he is doing the borrowing, and then it ends up feeling like he's getting paid. Right, and that's the issue that the that by 
borrowing from others is akin to being paid for his judgment. So he's not allowed to sit in judgment on those same people who have lent him anything. The Gemara says, but really, Eni, is it so? We know that Rava would borrow things from the house of Bar Marion, even though even though they didn't borrow from him, meaning it wasn't an equal lending opportunity, so to speak. Well, he says the issue was that he wanted to let them feel important. Meaning, Rava himself, and this we know, Rava himself was wealthy, and he didn't need to borrow for the sake of borrowing, right? For the sake of of getting, of using those items, right? Rather, the by borrowing from Barmerion, he's making them be important because they're the people who are lending to Rava. So it's really a very different kind of thing than the first case of simply a judge who's borrowing. Now, Rava here says, and Yerdan, when we spoke about this in preparation, I know you found this very interesting. You know, he talks about what's the prohibition for the bribe. Now, on Amud Aleph, where I did not read, we have certain verses, one in Shmot, one in Devarim, where it says very clearly that a judge cannot take a bribe, cannot accept a bribe. It's prohibited. But in this case, what is the reason for the prohibition of taking a bribe? And I say, well, this is basic, right? You don't, how can you have a fair judgment if you might, in fact, be skewed? Your judgment might be might be, you know, awry because somebody has given you some kind of benefit. So Rav explains that once you accept a bribe, then you feel closer to the person who gave you that money, right, or that gift. And then, it says, if he's like the same person as the person who gave him the gift. And a person is never going to be finding fault with himself, right? So then he can't treat the person that he is now, you know, at one with in the dispute. He's not going to find fault with that person because he's become like one with him. And the Gemara here kind of picks up on this uh, position from Rava, which is a fair, um, I think, interpretation or understanding of exactly where shochad, where bribery can really steer a person wrong. And it says, how do we get this from the words? Now, this is no longer Rava. This is the Stam and the Gemara says, my shochad, shahu chad, right? It's a play on words from, like, take the word shochad and turn it into shahu chad, that it, he is one, meaning that he is one with the person who gave him the shochad, um, which is certainly, it's a good way to remember the, the idea of Rava, but also it, I suppose we can say that it sharpens the point about where a judge might lose himself in the judging because of the gift, because of whatever shokhat has come his way. So Rav Papa says a person can't judge or should not judge a case involving somebody that he loves. Likewise, not somebody he hates. And for exactly the opposite reason, right? If somebody that you love, then you're not going to see, you're not going to count anything against them, even if really you should. And likewise, somebody that you hate, you might not be able to see that they really were in the right because you've already found fault with them to begin with. So part of this is simply the recognition that as upright as judges are supposed to be, they are also human and subject to bias, 
you know, that can be exacerbated by shochad, by bribery, but is also in place just by virtue of their relationship with other people. And it's a kind of thing where we talk about it nowadays, a person has to recuse himself or herself from a particular case. So in these cases also, he would have had to recuse himself from the case. Um, what follows this section is a lot of that recusing, meaning a case of, you know, and again, not to read them inside, but somebody helps Shmuel on the ferry boat. Um, a Maymar gets a benefit from a feather. Um, Rabbi Yishmael uh, got fruit, a fruit basket every Arab Shabbat. Rabbi Yish, um, who else do we have here? Right, meaning the point is that each one of these rabbis were then to be judges in cases that were connected to the, you know, to the giver of the fruit basket, to the ferryman, and so on. And each one of these cases then needs he needed to recuse himself. He has to. He says each each rav says I'm disqualified. I cannot preside over your case because you've come to me with even these very small minor gifts are considered enough to potentially sway a judge and not have him give, let's say, a clean ruling. Um, Abaye, I'm back to the part where um, that I was reading before, um, just to finish up the section. Amar Abaye, hi, Tzorvim Rabbanan, Demrachmin, sorry, Demrachmin, Lei Bana Mata, So what happens? We've got a Torah scholar, and he was beloved by the residents of his town. Lav Mishum Demale Itzfei, not because he was so great. El Mishum Dolomuchach, but because he didn't ever um, rebuke them, right? And he wasn't so he wasn't so demanding of their observance of mitzvot, so everybody loved him. And then Amarava Meresha Rava says, at first I would say that all those people in Mechoza, right? Hani Mechoza Kulhu Li, all of them love me. Um, but then Kevan Dahavi Dayana. Once I became their judge, Amina Minahu Sanuli. Once I became their judge, I realized or I said that some of them hate me and some of them love me. And when he saw that he, you know, said that one person was guilty on the first day and would be innocent on the next day, then he's understanding. He finally understands. He says that it's not because of his rulings. That they felt how they felt about him. Um, he says that if they love him, then they all will love him, and if they hate him, then they all hate him. And it's not about the courtroom per se. Um, I find this last passage passage a little bit oblique. Um, you know, what is he really saying about the population of, in Machosa, and why are they? You know, where does he feel that they would love him or hate him regardless? It does seem to be that in contrast to the Tzorvet Merabanan, who let everybody kind of get away with whatever they were doing, if they were slackers when it came to mitzvot, uh, Rava was not a slacker, and he did rebuke them. And, you know, and, he, and we see this, we've seen this in certain passages in Shas, we'll see more, right, that he would re rebuke them for their observance or really their lack thereof, and then, so some people really, it seems that some people really liked that and some people did not, but not because of the individual case in the courtroom. I still find it oblique, but that's the best I can, that's the best heads or tails I can make of it right now. Look, I think these stories are great because they show us how sensitive they were and how seriously they took being a judge. And even the discussion that's on the DAF about, 
you know, how do judges support themselves? You know, today, in today's world, being a judge is sort of a full-time occupation. And it's pretty clear from this stuff that that was not the case. You didn't make money off of being a judge. It wasn't like a career aspiration to have. Right. I think that because they're all doing their other rabbinical duties anyway. They're, you know, whether they're sages or they're blacksmiths, um, they're called upon to adjudicate in a case because of their learning, not because that's their profession. Right. And I think that's a really big difference between how judges and even Dayanim today. I mean, let's be honest how the rabbinical courts work uh, in Israel. Uh, it, it's not it's not held to that standard. But I'll leave it at that without getting into too much of a political discussion. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us reviews on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about the staff and our Talking Time on Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.